What's up guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. In today's episode, I am going to be delving into what a property investor should or might look at buying in 2022. What's looking hot, what's looking a little bit risky, and where I personally think that somebody should be thinking about putting their money, where I would put my money. And there's a lot of different signs out there, very strange market that we're in at the moment and on the one hand it seems to be kind of overheating with everyone looking at buying property and on the other hand it seems like there's a lot of signs of instability and you know you've got inflation and you've got supply chain issues and there's COVID is still out there and so very hard to kind of figure out what to do next and so I thought what better time than start looking at the 2022 year ahead and just look at the various considerations that you have to kind of pay attention to before you go and start looking at buying something. So sit back and pay attention as we take a deep dive into what to buy in 2022. You are listening to Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. And on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. You're most welcome to the show. All right, guys, you heard the introduction, and today we are talking about what to buy 2022. And the question is, I guess, should you buy anything in 2022? And I've got to be honest, I am starting to get a feeling that I got way back in 2007. And in 2007, the market was absolutely on fire. Everyone was going crazy buying like, like it is today. And yet I had a kind of a feeling that there was something sort of on the horizon and it was going to cause a lot of problems and you started to get these kind of news reports on the other side of the Atlantic coming from America people talking about the mortgage-backed securities and all of this kind of stuff and it seemed a long long way away from the area that I was investing in but I just had this kind of feeling and sure enough it did grow and grow and grow and start to spread and, and all of this kind of stuff. So it's something that I am starting to get a feeling about now, and I don't want to be alarmist. I do think there are still things that are supporting the market, but, you know, I wouldn't be honest with you guys if I didn't tell you that just I kind of half expect something to go wrong at some stage in the next, I don't know whether it's, you know, the next year or the next two years, but something is going to happen and it's going to upset everything that we're all kind of at the moment experiencing. And uh, it's hard to put your finger on it. I'm, I would not be surprised, though, if some event took down the stock market first. And what happens then is, as I've said before, the stock market kind of reacts in microseconds. And, you know, you can see that, you know, the, the guys that are looking at these computer screens, and, and in fact, a lot of it is automated anyway, but the market suddenly reacts. And in a couple of seconds, it's down so many percent and everybody kind of piles in. Whereas the property market is a little bit like thinking, think about a huge 
you know, oil tanker floating out in the sea and it's sailing, uh, sailing along. And if it wants to change its direction or if it even wants to kind of slow down and stop, it needs to put it into reverse maybe 20 miles before it actually reaches the destination where it wants to stop. It, it's just, it's such a big, heavy thing to kind of change direction. And the property market is a little bit like that. So it's much slower to change direction and to slow down and stuff. And so what you'll probably see is anything that's going to happen happens in the stock market first, and then the property market falls. Well, it doesn't necessarily fall, but it, it, it reacts in a slightly slower way. And what you've got to understand at the end of the markets are driven not by the economic kind of situation, but by market sentiment. And you might have a booming economy there, but if the sentiment turns negative, everyone will sell. And if the sentiment is turning positive during a very strange and negative time, if it's a positive sentiment, people will just buy. It's not necessarily about the economic numbers, although they do obviously drive sentiment. But sentiment is the thing that drives markets. And so I guess let's let's jump in and have a look at some of the positive and negative signs that are in the market at the moment. And I'm going to be talking about the property market, but I'm also going to just sort of go a little bit wider into the general economy. And starting with the positive signs, I mean, at the moment, we are looking at, you know, ultra low interest rates around the world, pretty much. And certainly here in Ireland, where I live, the the, the EU rate, the, the, the European Central Bank has been at 0% for the last five and a half years now. And it's not just the EU. I mean, the US is in a similar situation. The UK, slightly higher in the UK since they've left the the Eurozone and all that kind of stuff. But the end of the day, these negative rates, these zero rates in the ECB have created negative rates in the banks. And so if you're sitting on deposit, you know, a deposit of cash, a lot of the time you're actually being penalized by the bank for having cash sitting in there. And now that is not the case in the UK, but still extremely low. And because of that, you know, very low yields are actually seen as quite attractive. And in, you know, in the past, when people were investors were looking at, you know, a return on their capital, they would have said, oh, you know, we want kind of, you know, 8% or 10% or whatever it is. At the moment in Germany, you know, in, in, in cities like Frankfurt and Berlin and uh, Dusseldorf and stuff, 2% is what the housing market there returns. And so when they take a look at the Irish market, they see 35 3.6% return, and they think, whoa, that's, you know, that's a great market to get into. And so sure enough, we've got a load of these huge, big European funds piling into the Irish market, trying to buy up all the property because they see it as this huge bargain compared to. Now, on top of that, we are already in the middle of a housing crisis. And I'm not just talking about Ireland, although that is a pretty bad one, and I'm, and I'm kind of living here on the ground, so I can tell you first-hand knowledge about that. But in the UK, you have a housing crisis as well. You know, pretty much the shortages everywhere. In the US, it's the very same. You talk to anyone in the US about property, and there's, you know, there is just this huge demand. My brother lives in the West Palm Beach, which is in Florida, and he's saying that in the last 12 months, prices have pretty much doubled. And that happens because of shortages. And also because of the COVID uh, situation, a lot of people 
took uh, uh, the view that they didn't think they wanted to live in big cities like New York anymore. And so they started to look at lifestyle choices and they started saying, you know, I can actually work from somewhere like Florida. I can live in a much bigger apartment, pay half the rent, but still be able to kind of work my Wall Street job or whatever it is. And maybe they only need to go to the office a couple of days a week. And so they fly up to that and then they fly back to their big pad. And that is what he's seeing there. Here in Ireland, it's, it's very similar. And uh, you've just got rents have gone through the roof. And it's actually cheaper now to buy a property and pay a mortgage than it is to rent a property. And that is causing quite a lot of, uh, just a lot of people to kind of go out and buy and, and perhaps overpay. And the Irish, in the Irish market, just to focus on the Irish market at the moment, the government recently announced a thing called the Housing for All strategy. And they are planning to build 300,000 homes over the next eight years. Now that is a, an investment, an annual investment of 3 billion euro. And so you can kind of see with that news there, that's a positive sign, certainly from a housing point of view, because it just means that there's going to be a lot of money circulating around the housing market. And I think you're seeing that across the board. In terms of the COVID situation, it's also looking kind of positive, I would say. I mean, you know, you've got vaccines now being distributed around the world and you've got a lot of big cities that are starting to adapt. I'm hearing about Sydney, Australia and Melbourne, that they're starting to just learn to live with the, you know, live with COVID. And even New Zealand is now living with it as having managed to kind of dodge that bullet for a long time. Here in Ireland, we have a 93% uptake uh, of first of the first dose of the vaccine. And in total, across the entire country, 91.7% have taken, have, have been now vaccinated any, above the age of 18. 91.7% of the population above the age of 18 is fully vaccinated. That's pretty insane. And it just shows that, you know, things are looking good. Things are kind of returning to normal. Although, <laughs> will they return to normal? I heard recently that the... October 22nd, which is just a week from now, they were talking about lifting all of the remaining restrictions. So pubs, restaurants, nightclubs, everything would be just completely back to normal cinemas. And they're starting to say, whoa, hold on, there's a little bit of a spike in the COVID numbers again. So this may actually be paused for a bit. So it'll be interesting to see. But on the ground here in East Point, where I'm responsible for the running of the place it we have been preparing for this 22nd of October we've been looking at the well the 22nd is a Friday so the Monday is a bank holiday so it's actually the 26th when people will be returning to work and the 26th we are kind of expecting a big increase in the numbers that are turning up because there's no reason that you wouldn't be jumping on the, on the on the bus and coming in and taking your usual thing. But it'll be interesting to see, does that happen? Because a lot of companies are deciding to be a bit cautious about this. Housing around the world has gone through this crazy rise. And it is a positive thing, I guess you could say, but then you have to kind of wonder how long will it go on for. And a friend of mine, I just met somebody during the week and he was explaining to me that he bought a house in La Hinch, way back uh, before the 2008 crash and he he overpaid for it he, he kind of readily admits that and it, he paid 250,000 for this house it's I think it's on a golf course or something like that so it was a nice place it was intended to be a family holiday place 
And after the 2008 crash, it fell well below what he paid for it. And it actually was below the mortgage amount that he had borrowed on it. So he's been kind of, you know, dealing with issues with that for many, many years. And as early as 2000, as, as early as January of this year, 2021, an adjoining property close to his was sold and it made 170,000. So remember, he paid 250. And this property next door, which was the same size and layout and everything like that, went for 170. So he was kind of putting his hands in his head, thinking to himself, my God, I'm, I'm still in negative, you know, value. I'm still underwater with the mortgage. And, and he was just thinking, God, when will I ever get a chance to get out of this? Now, that was January. In just in the last week or two, he was telling me that one of the properties right next door to him, same same format, same layout, same number of bedrooms and everything like that, just sold for 331,000. So that is almost double what it was valued at in January. So a doubling of prices. And that's not the that's not just a one-off. I've actually heard one of my mastermind clients has been out looking at buying properties and he went and found a property in Dublin. He wanted to buy it. It was I think he it was on the Bidex one site and he was looking to buy it. I think it was a valued at around 150 or something like that. That was what he was expecting the the reserve price to be and he put in a bid, but he said that there was 48 other people that bid on this property and in the end it went for over 300,000. And so more than double what he was prepared to pay and again just a little bit of I mean I guess that's a positive sign for the property market. Things are going well. But to me, that actually, it's a bit of a red flag. So, And then you've just got to think about all this kind of stuff. People think, wow, I need to get into the market. They see these price rises and they kind of, you know, to the, to the people who don't know how to control their emotions and to people who, you know, the mental game is not quite kind of under their control. FOMO, fear of missing out, is a very dangerous thing. You can be looking at those price rises and you can be thinking, oh my God, I could have bought at 150 and sold at 300. I've got to get into this market because, you know, maybe it'll do it again and maybe I can buy at 300 and sell at 400. And so a lot more people are now looking to get into the market, which of course drives the prices further. And so that is, I mean, on the outside, it's a, I guess it's a positive sign, but to me, it's a red flag and just be, be wary of that. So having looked at the positives, let's have a look at some of the negatives now. And the first thing that stands to mind is the current supply chain issues that we are all facing. And it doesn't matter where you are, we are all facing these. I mean, I know the UK market is, you know, there's, there's newspaper reports every day about queues outside petrol stations and there's you know the shelves in the supermarkets are dry you know are bare and they can't get certain products in and all of this kind of stuff has been a bit of a problem and there's also warnings that you know Christmas there could be delays in getting things for Christmas and to go and order early and of course because you're ordering early it means that there's even more demand which pushes up the amount of buying that's going on, which makes the shortages even worse. And so it's kind of this knock-on effect. And in addition to that, there's this huge truck driver shortage in the UK. And uh, that's obviously related to the Brexit situation and the fact that a huge number of EU drivers are no longer welcome in the UK. And so 
but that 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 is not an exclusively UK situation. That, you know, in here in Ireland, certainly the building site that we have got going at the moment, we see huge shortages on materials and, and supplies and things like that. And so we're having to order huge amounts of stuff early, whereas before you would have had it on a next day kind of order cycle. Now it's months in advance. We've we're running out of space around the site because we actually have so much materials on site that normally wouldn't be delivered until we need them. And so it is a bit of a... And it's the same in the UK, or sorry, the US. And I'm hearing about supply shortages and ships not able to get into ports. And the shipping costs have just gone absolutely crazy. And I have been hearing about, you know, 700% increases in the cost of containers. I've heard that it used to be that when you were getting a container, you could choose whether you got a good quality one that was completely sealed and it would, you'd get a report that the, the you know, the, the color of the unit is X and it's got no leaks and it's got no holes and there's no damage to it and all this. You get these reports and you would sort of decide, uh, yes, that's a good quality container. I will accept that. Now you just take what you get. You don't have a choice in the matter. And the prices have gone up by 700%. And I, I was talking to one of my mastermind clients during the week, and he actually ships stuff in from China. And he was saying that, the, you know, a couple of months ago, he was paying $3,000, I guess, or whatever, 3,000 euro for a shipping container from China. That is now 17,000 for the very, very same shipping container. And so you're into a situation where, you know, that's a 14,000 euro or dollar increase and that has got to be passed on to your customers and i don't know how many products you manage to fit into a shipping container but you know fourteen thousand additional cost has to be spread out and what that does is that pushes the price up of your product and if your product price pushes up and if you're sort of a component of somebody else's product then that person has to increase their costs as well and so you can see how this has kind of a knock-on impact on top of that, you've got labor shortages. And the labor shortages are currently most noticeable on the building side anyway. We've got bricklayers are a real shortage and it's very hard to get your hands on them. And we've been looking at crews. We've had to increase the amount that we pay the, the bricklaying crews by about 200%. We were paying them, I think it was 115 at one stage, now 220 is the, is the rate that they're expecting to be paid. And this has obviously caused a backlog and, you know, causing delays. There's also fuel cost increases. You've got the cost of ga natural gas and things like that has shot up. And that is causing inflation. That and the shipping costs and the labor costs and the price of fuel and all that is, you know, kicking inflation up. And I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago on the uh, inflation situation and how it can have a negative impact. You should listen back to that if you can find it. I think it's probably four episodes back, five episodes back, something like that. And there's a big risk with that because as interest rates uh, are currently zero and everyone's used to paying 0%, if, if inflation starts to creep in, the banks, the central banks are going to have no choice but to start increasing the rates. And if they increase the rates from zero, it's going to be a rude awakening for a lot of people. If you, you go from zero to 1% or 2%, that is, you know, not what you were banking on. It's it's effectively like doubling of the rates that you're paying at the moment. So you've got to be just wary of how that could impact you. Everyone 
like at the same time, the, the central banks and all of these different politicians and around the world are saying, don't worry, everything's fine, nothing to, nothing to see here, uh, it's all perfectly normal. And I have to say, I don't believe that for a second. Whenever there is that kind of statement, it's because they don't want to spook the markets. They can't go out there and say, yes, this is a problem, because it'll spook the markets. So they keep saying everything is normal. This is what we were expecting. This is only a sort of transitional sort of inflation and that it'll all come back to normal. But I don't know. I'm a bit, I'm just a bit nervous about it. And then the big rise in house prices, that was caused by COVID delays, obviously. And you had the construction sector was held up and couldn't work. So that caused a lot of slow down on you know complete stops on building sites which caused a delay in the amount of product on the on the market coming to the market the pipelines were all kind of slow the agents weren't actually viewing or showing houses and weren't doing weren't in the offices to do sales banks were dealing with mortgages online only which slowed everything down so there's been this huge bottleneck and it's caused this housing shortage to just get worse and uh, a lot more people trying to kind of buy places and the crisis was already pretty bad but now it's just far worse and it's pushing up all of these pressures and then you've on top of that you've got the political stability instability that's out there because of a lot of these problems that i'm talking about and just recently in in germany i've been reading that voters in berlin actually passed a referendum to, to seize 200,000 apartments from large landlords. And that is because 80% of the uh, population of Berlin is renting. And I think they're just getting fed up with the big landlords and the control they have. In Sweden, the prime minister lost a confidence vote over proposed changes to abandon rent control in, in the country. And then here in Ireland, it's similar. You've got it's a major political hot potato. Just housing, everyone's complaining about it because everyone's feeling it. Rents are too high. You can't get a property. I'm actually, I've been asked by a couple of people who want to be interns for me and they, they, they're actually contacting me from other countries and they're saying, can we come over and you know work for you as an intern for six months or a year or whatever? And I'm saying, well, that's no problem. Come and work for me. But how, where are you going to stay? And, oh, don't worry, we'll get a place. And I'm saying, well, will you? Because I don't know where you're going to stay. And so they're actually finding it really difficult to get a place to stay. And, and everyone's facing that same kind of problem. And this is playing into the hands of the, I suppose you call them the left, and uh, the left-wing politicians. In, here in Ireland, it's called Sinn Féin, and they have been growing in popularity. And primarily because of the housing crisis and they're kind of saying that they'll sort the housing crisis and what they'll want what they're proposing to do is they'll put big tax hikes on the big funds that are buying all the apartments and all the houses and stuff and they'll increase taxes and all this and the problem is is if they get into which could is quite possible that could actually be very very disruptive to the economy and so there's that uncertainty and that instability and uh, you know, instability just, we we're talking, I was talking earlier about sentiment and how that can change the view on investment in the market. And if, if suddenly there's political instability, if there's uncertainty around the tax rate that you're going to be paying, these guys could pull out of the markets. Now, I, a lot of people don't like these huge big funds because they're starting to buy up everything. But the reality is, is that because of the 2008 crisis, 
large developments like apartment buildings and things like that, it's very, very difficult. Banks don't really like to touch it. And so unless you've got a big fund lined up to buy your development or, or sort of uh, forward fund it, it's very, very hard to finance a big project like that. And if you're going to try and solve the housing crisis, then that has to be a part of it. So you can see what I mean. Stability, uh, instability, political instability is a major issue. And then there are a few things that just could be the icing on the cake. First of all, in the U.S., the, the Federal Reserve, or not the Federal Reserve, but you've got the, the Senate and the House of Congress or whatever it is. They, those guys are uh, talking about the debt ceiling being lifted, and it's a big fight back and forth over that. And they've got two months to solve this problem before the America potentially defaults on its uh, debts. And if that was to happen, I mean, it may not happen. But the problem is, is the politicians in the US are so, so divided these days. You've got, you know, the Democrats on the one hand, the Republicans on the other, and they, they're so far apart in, in, you know, their policies and everything like that, that I can actually see a situation where they do allow a default to take place because of just the kind of the division and the the polarization between them. And if that was to happen, that would be a global shock and really spook the markets. I mean, that could actually turn the whole thing upside down. In addition to that, I have been talking about, if you're following me on social media, and if you're in my uh, Facebook group behind the facade community, I've been posting quite a lot of information about the Chinese property company Evergrande. And if you're not familiar with this, Evergrande is this huge, massive business. It's the biggest property company in China it has 300 billion in debt and it's unable to pay its debts and I, I first spoke about this I don't know six weeks ago I'd heard about it and it just I kind of thought mm, this sounds a little bit like 2007 when you started hearing things like Lehman Brothers and you know being in trouble and it has gone on now it's starting to spread to other countries and I've read about a UK based fund that has actually had to revalue its assets downwards because of contagion and it's just i don't know i'm i'm just starting to feel like there are signs of 2007 coming all over again and i can tell you anything that i bought in 2006 and 2007 ended up massively underwater in 2008 um, when the crash came and i had had mortgages and i had you know pretty highly leveraged properties up so far underwater that the banks came after me and it was extremely difficult time and i i had a lot of other properties that i had bought you know years before that and they didn't go underwater but the problem that, that you have when they get is that they get revalued downwards and so they're not underwater but they're still a lot worth a lot less than they were when you did your last net worth statement and what you do with the banks you sit with the bank and you say here's my statement of worth and you have your assets on one side and you have your liabilities on the other and it comes up with this kind of figure at the bottom that that's what you're worth and if your property even if you're not underwater on a specific asset if it has fallen in value from 450,000 to 300,000 and your mortgage is 250 it doesn't matter you're still you've lost 150 grand of value and that does impact how the banks look at you as a creditor or so there's a lot of issues there so assuming you can navigate all of the above assuming you feel confident that you can you can figure it all out and that these choppy waters are still you know worth investing in 
what should we buy? And I'm going to get into that now. But before I go into the specific assets that I think are worth looking at, I think it's it's probably worth just doing a quick review of some of the basics. And before you buy anything, you should do a review of your situation just to kind of figure out and make sure that you've got the right strategy in mind. If you don't have the appropriate strategy, then it doesn't really matter what you buy. Like there's people that have got that are well kitted out and ready to invest. But if that was the case, you're probably already investing. But if you're a newbie and you're looking at investing in this market and you have one of the three problems that a lot of um, the people that kind of approach me for advice and help, they either have no money or they have no time or they have no experience. And each of those needs a specific strategy. And, uh, you know, if you have no money, then you're going to need one strategy. If you, but if you're, you, you might have money, but you just don't have the time to do, that requires a different strategy. And then if you have got, you know, money and time, but you've got zero experience, you could go out there and make a big mess of it all. And so that requires a different strategy again. And this is all something that I actually cover on my, my Property Investor Roundtable, which is a free training that I give. And if anyone is interested in actually attending one of those, I can't, I'm starting to do it weekly now. So you should join the uh, Facebook group and you'll learn more about the, the weekly free training. And obviously I go into this in a lot more detail in my actual mastermind, but the free weekly training uh, roundtable is actually pretty good. I go over everything to do with property investment and I like to I like to just do a few Q&A questions at the end. So if you've got any specifics that you'd like to ask me, it's a good place to do it. So the next thing you have to do after you have reviewed your situation and um, assuming all of the above has been properly reviewed and you have the right strategy, the next thing to do is consider your unique advantage. And the unique advantage is something that I believe everybody has. Sometimes you don't recognize it. And so it's important that you actually explore this and figure out, you know, what little advantage can you, all you need is a tiny foothold and you can actually get to the next level. And um, so, for example, who do you know? That is an area that can actually be a unique advantage. For example, you have a network of people that you're friendly with. You have contacts that you're friendly with. There could be people in there. There could be contacts that you have that can actually open doors for you or can actually tell you about a particular property or give you access to information that nobody else has. You know, there's just, you should open up your network, your, your phone or your contacts, whatever it is that you have and go through it and just look down through the entire thing. Look at the people that you know, where they work, who they work for, where they live what their job is, all of that kind of stuff that can actually open doors for you. And you can find that there is an advantage that you didn't even realize that you had right under your nose. The next thing is, what do you know? And that is like a lot of people have specialist knowledge that they can leverage. So for example, if you are a, a tradesperson, a lot of people kind of, they, they, they have confidence issues because they didn't go to university or they didn't finish school and they kind of think, oh, who's going to invest in me? I can tell you some of the smartest people I know, some of the smartest investors I know didn't finish school and just went on. They didn't, they didn't go to university, just went on, got rolled up their sleeves and they've become very wealthy as a result. And so that has nothing to do with it. It's actually your knowledge. It's how they leverage the knowledge that they have. 
And if you're a tradesperson, you actually have some advantage. Now, if you're a professional, you also have an, some advantages there. You can you can probably understand values and legal stuff that other people may, may not know. But whatever it is that you specialize is an area that could give you a unique advantage. And a lot of people don't realize the value that they're sitting on already. And they kind of think, oh, I need to I need to learn this and I need to learn that and all this. The reality is, is you could be sitting on a gold mine at the moment. And so just don't underestimate that. Look, do these reviews. This is stuff I like to go through uh, with my own uh, mastermind clients. Just make sure that they're tapping into every bit of value that they can. Where do you know? If you're from a particular location, then you have probably got specialist knowledge of that location. Uh, if your grandparents live in a certain town, that will give you access to their knowledge. They will know who owns all the property. If you have an uncle living in a, in a village somewhere, could be that that uncle knows everybody in that town and it can actually get you in front of the owner of the property that you're interested in. You Just who you know, where you know is another thing. And those locations, a lot of the time you'll know about you know, issues in an area or you'll know about problems that um, nobody else knows about or you'll know about you know, opportunities that nobody else knows about just because you're familiar with the area and other people would not have that specialist knowledge. Again, when, when, you, when is like what I mean by that is just timing. You might know that a particular person is reaching a certain age and is going to be retiring soon. And that is going to mean that they're going to want to put their property up for sale. Knowing that, you can actually approach them in advance and you can have lined up a deal with them before they, you know, decide, oh, what am I going to do with this property? Where, well, you know, if I want to, if you're dealing with somebody who says, who say is a bed and breakfast owner and they've been doing this for years and years and they've reached a certain age and they kind of thought to themselves, you know what, I don't, with COVID and all of these kind of issues and supply chain issues this is a younger man's you know game or this is a younger person's game and they might want to get out and so there's an opportunity for you to step in so timing is a lot of it you know the timing of the people who own the assets you can go and meet with them have a chat and find out whether they're thinking about selling and perhaps you can put in an offer before they do or even better perhaps you can secure a deal with them like a, a purchase lease option where you, you basically enter into an agreement to rent the property from them for a couple of years, take the hassle away from them, and then you'll buy it in a couple of years' time. So they have instant rental income and no hassle. You take all the hassle, you pay them a fixed amount of rent, but you can actually make a lot of money off the back of that. And then in a couple of years' time, you'll have the money to actually buy the property. And then how, again, inside knowledge, like what whether you're in the industry or something like that, that can just give you specialist skills. So after you've analyzed all of these specifics, then it's time to start looking at the various sectors that are looking kind of hot, hot or perhaps not right now. And for example, the first one that immediately pops into mind for me is logistics. And by that, I mean warehousing, storage containers, storage yards, you know, logistics center. All of this stuff has just become super hot and it already is super hot. So don't think you're going to swoop in and, and get a bargain. But at the moment, it is it is hot and it's a really, really hot market. And it wasn't always the case. It used to be quite a underperforming area. And I can remember when you would look at newspapers and you'd see, you know, a factory unit for sale and it would be 
very cheap compared to everything else. And you could sort of see, oh, I could go in and buy that and I could get like a 14% yield on that property. That was kind of normal. And uh, nowadays, not the case. And it is, it is, is very, very popular. But one of the reasons why I still believe it's probably worth looking at is because e-commerce is the future and <laughs> is the future. It's already here, clearly, but I don't think Amazon is going to get any smaller. I think it's going to continue growing. I think the entire economy is moving towards an e-commerce solution. And a lot of people, obviously, COVID has taught them that they should have been in e-commerce. So they're all moving to that. And now in this particular time that we're in with supply chain issues and lots of people in government and stuff are starting to ask themselves, how can we avoid this supply chain problem in the future? If we have, you know, critical supplies of, you know, masks or vaccines or anything like that, should we be relying on China for the, you know, shipments to come in? Perhaps it's time to move our, you know, logistics and our supply chain closer to home. It's going to be a lot more expensive, but at least it's accessible at any time and it's reliable. And that is an important consideration. I think an awful lot more government departments and you know businesses are going to start looking at storing stuff and dealing with people who have storage locally and not people that have can you know tell you okay I've got my stuff over at my factory in China and as soon as that factory gets the delivery I'll be able to give it to you. You could find somebody in the local market to wherever you are who is able to supply you straight away and that could be all the difference it means to to that person being able to sell to you and you deciding that you know what china it's just not going on it's not just not attractive anymore because i just don't know and if i have to pay fourteen thousand for a shipping container well then maybe that fourteen thousand is better spent in the local economy and i'll i'll give you know twelve thousand to a local guy instead of paying 14 grand on the shipping after getting a, a cheaper laborer or something in, in one of the other reasons why logistics and local storage of stuff is, is going to become bigger and bigger i think is because of climate change and this whole esg sort of focus at the moment and the sustainability and there's the carbon footprint all of that stuff these are all reasons not to be shipping products around the world freight is emitter of uh, greenhouse gases and it's you know fossil fuels the amount of oil that is burned by ships and trucks and airplanes and stuff in the process of flying stuff around the world. It's just, it's, it is not about price necessarily. In this case, it is about the sustainability of it all. And the fact that you've got a, a ship has to f sail halfway around the world in order to deliver you a product. You've got to think about what's the carbon footprint of that. And I think this is becoming a much, much bigger consideration for governments and also for major investors. And you'll, you'll see a lot more focus on that in the coming years. And if that's the case, then storage in locations around the country is likely to be bigger and bigger. And what you'll probably have is what's known as a hub and spoke distribution model. And that is where there'll be a big sort of outlet somewhere near to the port, probably somewhere near Dublin or, or wherever there's a big port. And then there'll be smaller hubs that it can or smaller spoke kind of locations that it that they feed out to so they will have certain areas around spread out around the region and they'll move stuff to so they can get things around much quicker now something i am looking at myself very closely is the 
corporate office market and in particular flex office and co-working and all that and it's the reason i'm looking at it i've been running this business park now and we, we you know we have a big business park here with one and a half million square feet of office across i think it's 38 37 38 buildings we've got about 50 different occupiers that rent the buildings and in this place we have not seen very many people for the last 18 months. And the reality is you can work remotely successfully. Working from home is not working for everybody. That is absolutely for sure. And I know from my own experience, I leave the house every morning and I come into the office. I could work at home on a computer remotely, but I don't want to because it's too disruptive. I have young kids. They, you know, they don't understand that daddy is working and they want to come in and they want to play and they want to tell me things and stuff. And so I just can't get my work done there. Now, if you have a, a bigger home and you're, you know, you have a smaller family and you're, or you live alone or something, that may not be an issue. But the reality is, is work from home isn't really that practical, but remote working, working for a lot of people. The only thing is, is you do not need to drive a hundred miles or kilometers to the office any longer you could actually drive to a local hub that could be a place for you to work so for example you might live you know 50 kilometers from your from your headquarter building where you work where you should where you previously worked but if they allow it you could actually be working from a flex office in the town that you live and it could be a nice way for you to get out of the house but only have like a five minute commute. You head down to this place. There's other people there from sim- in, a, in a similar situation to yourself. You can go and you can mingle with those people. You can share ideas and stories over coffee and whatever. And it feels like you are, you know, in a place of work. Feels like it's in, it's a working environment, but it uh, is not involving these huge long commutes that everybody hates. And I think that there's an opportunity for regional hubs and local hubs to spring up around the country. And, and and I'm talking about any country. That could be the UK. That could be, well, I mean, literally anywhere. Even at the moment now, it's starting to become a possibility for me. I have a, I have a place in Spain, and it's a possibility for me to actually jump on a plane, fly to Spain, and actually spend a couple of weeks in my, and just work remotely from down there. Now, if I want to come back to go to a meeting, I have to go and book a flight and all that, which is not as practical as being able to jump in the car and drive. And so I do think that regional and local hubs will be quite popular. And if you have an opportunity to either pay for a membership or to rent a desk or something like that, I think this could actually be quite a big thing. You could have a situation where you could just, like as I described, a local place near to where you live, you pop in, you have a desk or you have your own little room, and you pay for that or your office or your your work, your employer pays for it and you get your work done there. You don't have to spend, you know, these hours in in the commuting, which is very very wasteful of your time. A lot of people have realized from the COVID experience that, you know, life is actually pretty good when you don't have to spend two hours a day commuting and you can do a whole lot of extra stuff. Now, what we will see in the big offices and the, the office park that I'm running here, there is, I'm seeing things like gym equipment being installed and I'm seeing nice new desks and meeting pods and things being installed. So it's it's definitely changing. 
there, there's still going to be a need for headquarter buildings. I don't think they're going away, but I just think that the way they're used is going to adapt now and it's going to change and it's going to be more experiential. And so when somebody comes to the office, and it might only have to be, you know, two days a week or something like that, but when they're there, they're there not so much to kind of sit in a desk and work. They're there to uh, coordinate with, you know, collaborate with their colleagues. They're there to catch up with their colleagues. They're there to kind of build relationships and have a bit of fun. Uh, it's like team building exercises. You might actually participate in like a game of five-a-side football or whatever. And all of this stuff is something that'll happen in the large headquarters and it'll be when you do go into the office it'll be part to be part of the team as opposed to looking for a quiet place to go and do your work getting into housing housing is most definitely a an area that is going to continue to do quite well i think we're currently in the process of building 54 houses in in shank hill here in dublin and i think it's a pretty safe strategy just to continue building houses this this huge shortage that there is is just it's you know it is definitely going to a long time before houses stop being needed just as long as you buy right if you if you don't overpay for a site and if you don't assume huge increases in prices and things like that then you should be able to kind of weather any kind of a storm and continue to do quite well now the only thing is is it's quite a specialist area now it used to be that house building was pretty simple and stuff but actually from like i go and meet my on a weekly basis and i i, I drop in and see how the progress is going on site and i find it absolutely fascinating it is so knowledgeable they the guys are so sort of experienced and it's such a specialist area that if you if you don't have any experience you're going to struggle to actually get into this business and uh, for example just you know a very small example is we've been having a big shortage of house building materials we we had expected to build some of these properties in in timber frame and it turned out that the logistics problems that we've got, the supply chain, was creating a problem. And it was going to be something like 12 weeks that we had to wait for the components of the timber frame to actually arrive on site. So we weren't going to lose three months to that. And so what we decided to do was change the design on the, on the go and actually bring in bricklayers to do it so that we could actually get to work straight away. And... That had a knock-on impact because all of a sudden we're now reliant on bricklayers and we hadn't necessarily been reliant, but we would have lost three months. So the price has gone up for the bricklayers, but we didn't lose the three months. Now, at the same time, the bricklayers, there's shortages of them. And so we haven't had the numbers of guys on site that we would like to have. And so we've had to make very, very specific you know, changes. We've been looking at where can we put the bricklayers that will actually you know, do the most amount of good right now. You could have them focusing on building one house or you could go and build out the foundations for four or five other blocks, which is what we've decided to do. And why was that? We wanted to get the concrete poured before the winter months come in because if it's very wet or if it's very cold, you cannot pour concrete. And so we would have been completely restrained. And when the brick layers do come become available, you can actually put them on those sites where the foundations are now dug and poured, where you wouldn't have been able to do that if it was if the if it was into the bad weather months and stuff. So, it's quite a specialist area, and if you didn't have somebody who is super knowledgeable, super experienced, you just simply would not be able to make those kind of decisions. 
and you'd be stuck and you might have you know told them to go and focus on building that one house and that one house is going to mean that you're months and months behind because you didn't get the other concrete stuff done in the winter. Also, because of the housing crisis, this is just something that's going to completely go, continue to kind of go up, I think. My mastermind clients, a couple of them are actually really enjoying a lot of success with the HMO strategy. And HMO, I'm sure you've all heard of it, but if you have not, that is houses of multiple occupation. And basically what it means is you buy a house and instead of it being rented by a family that lives in the three bedrooms, you buy a house and you rent out each of the bedrooms to individuals and they share the kitchen or whatever. And it is because the price of the market has, has kind of gone crazy. This is a very affordable solution for single people and for couples. And you know, it's not for everyone, for sure. Your families can't live in this situation. And it also often has a bad perception. And we were just talking about that the other evening. We were talking about how a lot of people, if they heard that there was a house next door that was in a HMO, you know, you'd be kind of like, oh God, really? And that is that is the perception. And it could be the wrong perception. You know, I get that. A lot of people run very well-organized HMOs and it's professional people that it's aimed at, which is a good thing. But So it can be done well, but there is that perception that is out there. But where they're really getting a lot of success is, you know, you buy a three bed and you add another two or three bedrooms to that through an extension. And so you've added a considerable amount of value and you actually get the the rent right up there. Or you can buy older houses that have like lots of rooms. And uh, one of the mastermind clients bought a building that includes a pub and he's turning it into a nine bedroom HMO. And that is, uh, that looks like a really great strategy and very strong yields 10 to 15 percent per annum in a in a market that is you know negative interest rates if you put your money in the bank i mean it just looks so strong and let's just i think it's just going to continue the biggest thing obviously is not to over leverage uh, on the borrowings if you have to borrow a lot of money to do this then you know there's a there's a risk if interest rates start to creep up because of inflation that you could get caught there and just make sure you don't overbuy or, or overpay, I should say. Do not go into these auctions where there's 40 or 50 people bidding on a property. If you're into a situation like that, you are just simply going to overpay. You know, 40 or 50 people all trying to, you know, clambering to get the property. It's just not the way to go about making money in the property market. You've got to get creative. You've got to get resourceful. And there are plenty of ways to skin a cat. And you just got to figure that one out and there's a lot of ways to do it but you just got to be careful to do to do it care you know to take care and not to not to over and then the final area and this is just me kind of throwing in one final one that i'm not i don't have a strong view on this but hotels whether they're big or small or even large bed and breakfast and stuff a lot of these places have suffered massively in the last 12 months 18 months and a lot of these places will have debt a lot of them will be performing very badly for the last while and so uh, there's a good chance that they're actually going to have some very strong years ahead but if a person wants to sell a hotel usually they sell on the back of trading figures and they you will they will be selling on the basis of the the figures that they can prove that they have been achieving for the last while and obviously there's an 18 month gap there now and so it's going to be quite hard for 
anyone who wants to get out of the market to actually to put a value on their asset. And so if you are in the right place at the right time, you may be able to negotiate a good price for a hotel. And I have a feeling there is going to be some boom times ahead as COVID, well, assuming COVID goes away, of course, but there's a lot of people out there looking to spend money and just get back to normal life. And that includes travel and leisure. And whilst we're learning to work remotely, and I don't know about you guys, but I do dozens and dozens of Zoom meetings a week now. And so when I have the chance to travel for, not for work, but for, you know, enjoyment and for leisure, you can be bet I'm going to jump on that opportunity. And so I am, I think a lot of people feel the same way. I think there's going to be a bit of a boom. So if you can get into that leisure or that hotel kind of sector, it could actually be that it, it goes and it performs quite well. And it's the kind of thing that actually is probably a good enough hedge against inflation. So if prices increase, you can increase your rates. That also comes with a bit of a health warning because obviously if inflation goes up, then maybe people can't afford what they wanted to spend their money on travel and all that but it's a kind of so it's a double-edged sword but look guys i hope this has been a helpful discussion i hope you found it useful just be careful not to overpay there you know do plenty of comparisons do your due diligence and do just the most important thing is just do not get emotional or do not let your ego get in the way fomo makes a lot of us do fear of missing out that makes us do a lot of dumb shit and so Without further ado, I will wrap it up and speak to you next week. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you enjoyed it or found it useful, please take a moment to leave a review over on iTunes or indeed share it with a friend. This really helps the podcast grow and reach more people. If you have any questions or topics or indeed guests you would like me to interview, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media under my handle Gavin J. Gallagher. And you can stay up to date with all the projects I am working on by joining my tribe. And you can do that by adding your name and email over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. That's all for now. See you back here next week. <music>